watchers in the fourth dimension. I overlook nothing significant. Can't shoot me unless you've filled in all the forms. When time comes, he will take us. We have no choice. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And if you would only curb this insolent streak, you might have a great future as a servant of the state. And this episode, we're off to a parallel universe as we look at the season seven finale, the one and only Inferno. However, before we get started on the story, it's time for a quick look at the mail. Riley, over to you for that this time around. From email we got from Bill Lamont discussing the seeds of death, he says, you are the funniest Doctor Who themed podcast of which I know in a strong field. I can't keep track of all the funny things you say. Thank you. I need comedy as much as I need air, water, and food. I can only think of one reason for the heating system to go up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, getting rid of bed bugs. They could get to the moon base. Is this also the serial in which Troughton is recorded slipping and falling in the foam? That's where I recall Padbury laughing. I think we may have discussed seeing her crack on screen. Oh, absolutely. Yes. 100%. Yes. Oh, okay. yeah. Bill, you're absolutely right there. He goes on to talk about our Patrick Troughton retrospective. He says that I love your analysis, factoids, and comical comments. And now my dog catcher podcast app has moved on to the sportful and a comical argument as to whether a hot dog is a sandwich. I'm less interested in whether it's a hot dog or a sandwich. I'm more interested in what is a podcast app called Dog Catcher for? Why is it called Dog Catcher? It's just weird. <laughs> anyway, from Facebook, we had some comments regarding our Spirit from Space episode. David John Stapleton says that John Pertwee is still the real doctor as far as I'm concerned. Darren Little says, I was five years old when this was broadcast. My dad had got a color TV. The only doctor I had known was Troughton. I was totally confused and terrified going shopping with my mom in Catford, London, walking past mannequins in shop windows. I can understand that. Karen Giles <laughs> said that the Autons terrified me age six, and when they brought them back a year later, and to be honest, they still terrify me. I think we can agree with that. J.M. Casey, I know that there are a few odd plot holes, but I gotta be honest, this is a top five story for me. I just love it. I think it has a really great setup. I just love the way Liz is introduced in her early interactions with the Brigadier. I love the idea of the Nestines. John Pertwee, well, I understand why someone may not think he is the Doctor yet, but he is already John Pertwee's Doctor, if that makes sense. Though I do think he's channeling the second Doctor in his early scene with the Brig especially. Paul Osborne says that Spearhead is probably the best Pertwee story right off the bat. No foppish flounce, no gadgets, action by havoc, or ear-splitting Axos sound design. Just a scary-as-hell attack on Little England worthy of Nigel Quatermass Neal, even if the cross-eyed tentacle battle in the final reel was far too cheesy. I don't know, I really liked it, even if it was cheesy. We had some comments for our Quatermass 2 episode we just did. Michael Alderson, or Alderson, I apologize if I mispronounced that, said that he wishes that Sid James had been in Doctor Who. I think that would have been interesting. It would have been fun. Yeah. yeah. And then on Instagram, going back to our Spearhead from Space episode, Doctor Who 60s, 70s, and 80s said... Absolutely loved the novelization of this one. A lot of people have knocked Terrence Dix's pamphlets over the years, but when you're a kid, he can't be beat. I still vividly remember the day I first plowed my way through this book. And University of Fools said, first story I remember seeing at point of broadcast. Well, that's the mail. And now it is time for Anthony to tell us the background info of Werewolves of Inferno. <laughs> Thank you, Riley. Before I do that, as a reminder, we do love to hear from our listeners. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at watches 40 at gmail.com. 
or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. Pardon the interruption, but a correction must be made on our episode on the Ambassadors of Death. When I was criticizing the lack of an interesting motivation for General Carrington, also known as General Moral Duty, I mentioned the motivations of another military general antagonist in the 1980s comedy, Spies Like Us. I mistakenly said that part was played by the great Sterling Hayden, when it was actually played by the prolific American television actor Steve Forrest, most well known for his role in the show SWAT. Obviously, my mind went to Sterling Hayden due to his famous role as General Ripper in the film Dr. Strangelove. My apologies. We now return to our regularly scheduled episode, already in progress on your podcasting app. Anyway, looking behind the scenes on Inferno, as Riley just promised, we have another story that was a somewhat difficult production. Now, the story behind this one starts at the time that Barry Letts became producer. The fourth and final slot for season seven had not yet been filled. Several other proposals had fallen through. Script editor Terence Dix suggested approaching writer Don Houghton, or Houghton, I think it's Houghton, who had been the script editor on Crossroads when Dix had been writing for the soap opera. And Houghton had also worked with Letts on Emergency Ward 10. For his Doctor Who proposal, Houghton took inspiration from a scientific article that he had read several years before, which detailed an American project to drill more than three miles into the Earth's crust. Since there were seven episodes to fill, Dix and Letts came back and suggested a subplot featuring a parallel Earth. The storyline itself was commissioned in November 1969 with the initial title The Mo Hole Project, which was directly named after the real-life American project. The title then became Operation Molebore, and then The Molebore. The scripts were formally commissioned in January 1970, although Houghton had already started writing them, and the working title soon changed once again to Project Inferno. Letts and Dix asked for a monster to be included in the story, and so Houghton added the primords to the scripts. Letts originally envisaged them as ape-like creatures, but it was returning director Dougie Camfield's idea to portray them more as werewolves. In terms of casting, it was also Camfield who made the decision to bring back John Levine as Benton, filling an unnamed sergeant role in the scripts, and this continuity was further reinforced by the character's last-minute inclusion in the prior story, The Ambassadors of Death. Camfield, always being fond of nepotism, also cast his wife, Sheila Dunn, in the role of Petra Williams. Assigned as designer, we have the return of Jeremy Davis for the final time. Davis had been co-designer on season one's The Daleks and sole designer on season five's The Ice Warriors. Christine Rawlins, of course, continues her run as costumer, and it was decided to use stock music rather than hiring a composer, and Inferno is in fact the very last story in all of Doctor Who to solely rely on stock music. When it came to filming, this is where things became troubled, with a number of accidents and unfortunate events happening during production. John Pertwee accidentally hit a stuntman with Bessie while performing a scene where the Doctor attempted to evade troops in the parallel Earth. Pertwee also famously did not get along with Camfield and refused to follow his direction, and Sheila Dunn eventually intervened to persuade Pertwee to comply with her husband. Tensions further mounted when Nicholas Courtney convinced Letts and Camfield that it should be the brigade leader that would interrogate the Doctor rather than section leader Shaw, which was a move that made Caroline John rather unhappy. With tensions running high, Dougie Camfield collapsed on set. His wife soon revealed that he had been suffering from a heart murmur, and it was agreed that he should be relieved of his duties for health reasons. At this point, he had already filmed episodes 1 and 2 and all of the location shots for the remainder of the story. 
While Letts initially thought about bringing in another director, there was already so much recorded, and Camfield had left extremely detailed notes about how he planned to shoot the rest of the story. And so Letts decided to finish the story himself. And it was also during filming that the story's name was finalized as simply Inferno. So that's what we've got behind the scenes. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if the team think any of that comes across on screen. But before we get there, we have our short summary, which is in the hands of Don. Don, over to you. The Doctor and Unit must stop an unreasonable person in charge of a pseudo-industrial location where murders and strange things are occurring in order to avoid disaster. Wait, that's pretty much all of them this season. Let me try that again. An egotistical (laughs) idiot named Stallman, the worst boss since Robeson in Fury of the Deep, is hell-bent on drilling through the Earth's crust for a gas he has humbly named after himself, ignoring literally any safety precautions or good sense along the way. The drill head begins leaking a green slime that turns any who touch it into violent green werewolves. Was I on Ambien while I watched this? What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Unless, of course, you're somewhat important to the plot, then it just makes you even more unreasonable and takes forever to take effect. Meanwhile, the Doctor is transported into the Star Trek Mirror Universe, where the same plot is unfolding, only everyone's just a bit more fascistic and eye patches are, oh my god, you guys, so in this year. (laughs) Returning to Earth, having learned nothing, really? Fascism is bad? The Doctor naps until Stallman is defeated because he revealed his persona too early and everyone finally grew a pair and did what they should have done five episodes ago and turned the damn drill off. The end. <laughs> wow. Well, I hope you liked it more than your short summary <laughs> indicates. <laughs> It'll be fine. I accidentally touched some green slime and got savage on it. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's a basic rule of my life. You see green slime? Don't touch it. Yeah. Just don't touch it. All right, let's get started. Episode one. I adored the volcano opening. It's so much better than the last serials thing that they tried to do. Yes. Hey, now. I'll take volcanoes any day. I agree with Julie. It did, <laughs> The intro didn't come back to haunt you. It did its thing, <laughs> and then it went away. At the very beginning, everyone was like singing or something. We got La Triavada, so that was a lot of fun. And then the other guy was whistling and singing, and I was like, man, I'm interested. And it's like, oh, since they all use stock music, they were like, we'll provide our own. I wasn't sure if they'd even told Pertwee they were filming, and that was just him driving around <laughs> singing. <laughs> I, hope I mean, so. I think this is definitely where he really starts playing himself, for sure. I would say that. So we meet Sir Keith. I liked Sir Keith. He was ineffective, but I liked him. He reminded me of David Thewlis, Professor yes, Lupin, specifically. Yes. Oh, yeah. I okay. agree completely. <laughs> Before we get too far away from it, I do want to talk about Slocum, because it's mentioned on screen that he's someone everyone likes, and it's established pretty well. He's in whistling. As soon as he starts going in, he's bantering with his fellow tech. He's incredibly polite to Sir Keith, and then he touches the green goo and complete change in personality. You mean the Nickelodeon slime, right? <laughs> I do mean the Nickelodeon slime. I thought you meant the He-Man slime pit slime. (laughs) I think what stands out to me is the sound mix. I really thought it was a good touch that when we had a conversation between Sutton Keith in front of the main drill area, it had a lot of background sound, but it wasn't overbearing. You could still hear them, but they were also, you could tell that the actors were raising their voice as if they were next to a very, very loud drill. And I just thought like, wow, this is the first time I remember where there was like a loud noise in the show or added to the show and it was mixed well with the sound of the dialogue. 
that I think is something that's present through the entire story. And as the story goes on, mm-hmm. the drill gets louder. Yes. And I think that's so cool. While there were a few instances where it would have been nice to have more music at the same time, I think the story actually worked really well because since there was so much background noise, you didn't need the music. And when they did use music, it was effective. They They found pieces that set the right mood. Yeah, it was more like ambient sounds rather than truly music. And listening to it and hearing this... I almost wonder if the Chernobyl miniseries took some of its cues and sound from this story. I could definitely see that similarity there. Speaking of other tuck issues, the use of the green screen as the doctor is going into the garage. Oh, they love that CTO for putting people (laughs) there in the doorway. That was something new. And also it was a fun little edit where Slocum's arm is slamming down on somebody and it cuts quickly to someone hammering a nail. It's a cute little touch there. Yeah. That's really well directed. Yeah, I'm in danger of going on a Camfield love fest, so I'll shut up. There was a lot of good things, and I think some of it is in some other episodes, but there was a lot of close-ups, which was interesting. Sometimes that was good, sometimes it wasn't. (laughs) Just for how much it was used, I guess I should say. Yeah, I think there was a lot of good direction. A lot of the fight sequences were good, and I didn't think that they overused fight sequences there weren't that many shoot 'em ups so riley i think yeah. you might be have oh, been okay yes. you know green werewolf wrestlemania is much more preferred over a giant gunfight i guess they couldn't afford to pay havoc for this serial <laughs> so we get introduced to professor stallman yeah, yeah. He's a dick oh my yeah. god he's a dick just <laughs> like, take everything i said about fury from the deep and double it here <laughs> The worst of bosses. Stallman is amazing. He is the absolute worst because he is so awful that he's a dick in both universes. (laughs) I do have some comments about that that I'll save until we get there. But yeah, and plus in this universe, he looks like Lennon. Vladimir, not John. He looks like a combination of Lennon and President Scroob from Spaceballs. (laughs) Well, that's just the Mm -hmm. the nice waistcoat that he has. That really works really well on him. But I've never seen a person that was so against advisors and experts. I'm like, what type of scientist or professor is this? Advisors and experts, that should be like who you are. And and who put someone like that in charge of a project with no one able to override him? Yeah. And we don't see that in real life until Brexit. And you get politicians saying, <laughs> well, I think everyone's a bit fed up of experts. <laughs> <laughs> Something a real politician said in the UK. Experts, what are they good for? Yeah. Am I right? We also get introduced to my new ship which is Petra and Sutton. Yeah, he doesn't get off on a good start. Certainly not with Petra. Oh, no, no. absolutely not. I was afraid that Petra was going to not be a strong character, and I think she goes in between being soft and being strong, and I think they did that pretty well, so I don't hate her as a character. I thought she was incredibly well-balanced. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's well-acted. I mean, considering yes. that she got the job by sleeping with the director, she does an amazing job. i think petra's interesting because first she tries to come across as kind of tough by being guarded and closed off and siding with stallman and while it's not explicitly said on screen her toughness eventually shows by her taking a stand against him i really love that story arc for her i think we should talk about the ending here with salukum turning into what i like to call a green werewolf richard pryor 
I found it interesting that, yes, we had that, but also most of them were green, but one of them really looked blue. Yeah, there was a blue one. They must have run out of green. It's not just Slocum gives a sense of danger. There's that line from Greg, I'm not nervous, I'm terrified. And that, I think, along with what's happening to Slocum, sets the scene for future mm-hmm. episodes. Greg comes in, he's cool, he's collected, he's suave, he's experienced, and he's admitting, Jesus Christ, this is scary as hell. Yes, and why I love Greg. Episode two? Slocum bursts in, growling at the Doctor and Brigadier in the power room as the, the power's going off the charts because Slocum has, has screwed with the lever. The sound effects for our werewolf creatures, I think, are great. Very unnerving, mm-hmm. spooky, creepy, quite good. I think they're good. I think it's not over-the-top werewolf, so we're not just <laughs> recreating that because they're not werewolves per se. They're Diglo werewolves. <laughs> But yes, I do agree that that was good. I like how instead of really having a lot of blood, you had the wall getting scorched, which I thought was interesting. So they really played up that whole they need heat thing. And there's that great effect in episode one when Slocum initially touches the slime and it smokes as he touches it. Mm-hmm. Like as if it's burned, like very, very searingly hot and burning his skin. So that really feeds into that. I really like that. And it's just interesting how. We never get an explanation. Is this no. is this Mm-mm. green goo a sentient thing, or is it something? And you mentioned in the behind the scenes that they wanted to do kind of like a primordial thing, but now that we have werewolves, that doesn't necessarily work that way. They wanted a monster. There's no story justification. They don't need to be there. No, I don't know. I always thought that what would really work on this. It's called Inferno. You're digging into the Earth's core. Why don't they turn into green demons? Wouldn't that just work better? Or monsters made of magma. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly don't mind it all that much. Um, I guess I didn't really think too hard on that. They needed to show something that was a problem that wasn't just, oh, we're going to dig into the Earth's core and oh my goodness, like everything dies. There had to be some other thing to make that tension rise. And they've got to be in there to get in the way and prevent the Doctor and crew from solving the problem too easily. I politely disagree. I think there could have been ways of dealing with it, especially, I don't know, I I can't think of any plot-related question where the answer is blue or green werewolves. In the script and in the credits, they're referred to as the Primords, even though they're never referred to as such on screen. And the Doctor talks about Slocum going through a retrogression of the body cells. The implication is that it's what we've kind of evolved from-ish, I think. Interesting that they decided to not go ape then, as Let's originally wanted to do. But let's not really go down that rabbit hole much more. Let's talk about the goo being jarred. They've managed to jar what's coming out from number two output pipe, and they're kind of showing it to Stallman and the Doctor and Lethbridge Stewart and Sir Keith, and Stallman's just openly hostile to everyone, has no interest in talking to Lethbridge Stewart, and then just decides, I'm going to manhandle the jar. I think that's the other big mystery of this serial is how someone who is that big of an a-hole got a grant to do this. <laughs> he probably knew the other a-hole that held all the money and said, here yeah, you go. Yeah, that's how it works. You know. That's always how it goes. But yeah, I like that whole thing with having it in the jar and them not really knowing what it was doing, knowing that it was hot, too hot, and then Stallman just being an idiot and grabbing it because, oh, he's so smart. 
I love Pertwee in these scenes. He's looking at mm. it and saying, I wish I could hear it. I yeah. wonder if it screams. Yes. The green goo in a canister like that, that possesses people, very, very much Prince of Darkness by John Carpenter, has also a similar situation, big thing of green goo or slime or something, that when it contacts people, it possesses them and turns them mad, evil, whatever you want to call it. I'm sad that we didn't go down the flubber route because then maybe <laughs> Stallman would be not angry all the time. The absent-minded doctor. <laughs> or the pink goo from <laughs> Ghostbusters 2. We have a lot of goo-related yes. options. Yeah, and we could play some music and have dancing. Exactly. It'll be wonderful. Dancing toaster, everything will be fine. Julie, you mentioned Sutton and Petra's shipping. Yes. Episode two, he really, at the beginning, to go back to what Anthony was saying about getting off the wrong foot, that first interaction, a real cringe, creepy yes, guy moment there. Especially when he says, when he told her that there were two things she could do for him for helping. I'm like, oh God, here mm -hmm. it comes. <laughs> he really writes himself, especially because he is so competent and he knows mm -hmm. what he's doing and he's an actual expert. And he's going to Petra knowing that I can't get through to Solomon, but I could probably get through to Petra and understands that she has some sort of power. Well, Apparently not, but <laughs> but I think he goes through all the right steps and everything. And then when we get to alternate worlds, we'll get into more of it because I liked him better in alternate world than in real world. There are a couple of directional items that I really love here, particularly as Stallman begins his transformation. There's a moment where he's looking at his watch as he's talking to Petra, and you can just about see a little bit of discoloration mm -hmm. on his hand. Yes. There's that scene where he's got his keys and he's tossing them about as if they're too cold for him. Like, just the little touches are really, really well done. And I think that's a sign of Camfield's attention to detail. And, of course, you've got Stallman being petulant and cutting the Doctor's power and all that kind of stuff, because he's just a jackass. And being such a child about the computer and taking the microcircuit and stomping on it. There's one very subtle thing that I want to mention here, and that's when you look at the technicians in the background, you have a few ethnic actors among them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I don't think we had that in the Mirror Universe, though, did we? That's exactly where I was going. With that. So I was going <laughs> to save go. that for when uh -huh. we get there, because uh -huh. that's a very obvious little thing, an indicator of a slightly more fascistic world. One more thing we have to talk about was the introduction of Venusian karate is in this episode. And also, I always thought that at the very end, as we see the Doctor disappear... He leaves annoyed because of the professor's shittiness and the brigadier submitting to his authority. How funny would it have been if the doctor disappearing with the TARDIS console right there as he's just pissed off with everybody? That was it. That was the end of the whole series. Yeah. He, just, he just leaves. <laughs> that's it. End of show. End of story. Roll credits. Two episodes no, done. Two episodes. That's the end of Doctor Who right there. <laughs> Skew gas. I'm going home. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Good segue. Episode three. The Doctor's very clearly experimenting with the TARDIS console and trying to get it working. And it's an interesting take to send it sideways in time. I loved it. I absolutely yeah. thought that was brilliant. I also thought that it gave the actors some time to really spread their wings, especially the ones who were so different. Brigadier and Liz, I thought having them be so different from their normal selves was wonderful. So I really enjoyed it. Shout out to Benton, too. Mm, yes, Benton. Oh. I love it. Should I recognize the dictator who they had in the background? No, no. Okay. 
He was like a costume assistant or a makeup dude or something. Like they just found someone in the staff who kind of looked like he might be kind of like Oswald Mosley or someone like that and stuck him on a poster. Yeah. What an honor. You look like a jerk. Let's take your picture here. All right. right. Okay. I just wanted to double check. And to go back to what Don mentioned in his summary, it was the Star Trek episode titled Mirror Mirror that also did the classic dual universe thing. That whole thing is something as old as science fiction itself, really, that concept in in storytelling. And I will say I was very disappointed by the tremendous lack of goatees. Stallman lost his evil goatee. I know. That's exactly what I was going to say. I don't think Mirror Mirror, the Star Trek episode, had been broadcast in the UK at this point. It's possible that Let's Dix and Hooten might have been aware of it because the BBC had started broadcasting Star Trek, but I don't think Mirror Mirror had been shown yet. I think, speaking of the character designs, I think Liz looks better with the new hair. Am I wrong on this? The short little, uh, what would you call that, Bob? I like the darker hair. The dark hair works better for her. But the brigadier with an eye patch and no mustache. And a scar. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have an eye patch, you have to have a scar by law. There's a very famous behind-the-scenes story of one of the takes where Nicholas Courtney turned around in the chair and everyone else standing there was wearing an eye patch. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love this whole world. I love it. I thought they did a good job of establishing it fairly quickly. I really love how, from the get-go, we've already mentioned the poster and how sinister that is. There are shades of 1984 with that. And then when the doctor leaves his hut and is getting shot at, it's the same cheerful private who had come to the hut and was kind of bantering with him at the door in episode one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he just starts shooting at the doctor. Like that's such a cool way of showing the difference between the two universes. You know, the kind of cheerful cheeky chappy is kind of aggressive. And of course, the doctor wandering around being shot at an industrial complex it's, as Don would say, pure quater masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> and we get Professor Stallman wearing sunglasses inside. With like that <laughs> Nehru collar and the button down. Very, very Dr. No. Once my glasses fell apart at work and I had to go to my car and get my prescription sunglasses so I could actually see. And a co-worker of mine came up to me and said, you know, Anthony, only two types of guys wear sunglasses inside. Blind people and douchebags. A hundred percent. I'll let you guess which one Stallman is. A hundred percent. It was one of those things where I was sitting there and I'm like, oh, maybe he'll be a little bit better. And then he walks in with sunglasses like, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Everyone else is worse. Stallman's just kind of the same. Pretty much. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen in one world or another a different, nicer Stallman. A guy who was just driven, but just kind of casually pushed off people's concerns. Like, no, no, I got this. It'll be all right. Thanks. for Just ignored them rather than both just being full on raging douchebag all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you completely flip it where he's like the put under stressed guy that's being forced to do all this work because he's the one that knows how to do it. And it's Keith, who's who's the <laughs> dick. That's like, you got to do this. You got to push, 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 push. Work 18 hour shifts. You got to get this done. It is a scientific labor camp. So I'm surprised they didn't yeah. go down that route. <laughs> Scientific labor game. That's right. <laughs> Forgot about that part. <laughs> Speaking of characters and their parallel universe selves, Greg Sutton, he's still clearly a pretty pleasant and reasonable guy who's just been beaten down by life under a fascist yeah. totalitarian regime. 
Yeah, he's the one with the least amount of change. And I love him for it. I like that they chose the guy who was brought in to fix things. They decided, you know what? In the alternate world, he's still going to be the guy who's brought in to fix things because he's just that good of a guy. I'm like, yes, Greg Sutton. Thank you. <laughs> but Lethbridge Stewart, that line when the doctor says, but I don't exist in your world. And Lethbridge Stewart just calmly goes, then you won't feel the bullets when we shoot you then. So like, good. Oh. That is a good line. So good. <laughs> and then just casually dropping like, oh yeah, we executed the royal family. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Holy crap. You know, when shit starts hitting the fan and the drill head starts going critical again, because it seems to do that every episode, Lethbridge Stewart saying, if this place goes up, we will go up with it. Like, you're all staying here by force. It is brutal. So good. I really enjoyed how they set it all up and how they characterized everyone and made them slightly different. I, I loved it. And cheeky, chappy, friendly, cuddly Sergeant Benton or Brigade Underleader Benton as he is here, threatening the doctor with the firing squad when the doctor's trying to repair the computer and then just changing it to, actually, how about I just shoot you here and now? Oh. <laughs> Dude, this isn't your mama's Benton. <laughs> <laughs> And that takes us to our cliffhanger and into episode four. It's in this episode where we start getting the clever script setup callbacks. For example, yes. it's where Sutton and Petra have their civil servant comment, which goes back to the conversation that Sutton had back in the first episode with Keith about, I guess you're a public servant now. And then Stallman, again, in this evil universe, talking about how his calculations would eventually have come to the same solutions as the doctors, just as he had said before. And of course, the Sir Keith thing uh, regarding the car, like we're starting to get those connections. And that's where I think this entire serial, this is where the strength of the serial is. The structure of the script, the structure of the story is so good. Yep. There was also a callback where Sutton was asking about the man in the funny clothes because he was the one who called out on the doctor saying, why in the world are you wearing that? Mm -hmm. Which is a completely legitimate question. <laughs> It reminds me of how the script was written for Back to the Future, how all the things before he goes to the past, all things in his present set up little lines, little bits for mm -hmm. later. And there's just that type of work in order to write that into a story takes a lot of time and it's got to take a lot of crafting. So it's very impressive. Very, very impressive that they were able to do this, especially what I imagine would be the Doctor Who production schedule, which is no time at all. Yeah. I want to talk more about Sutton here. Last episode, we kind of saw this slightly beaten down dude. Here you've got someone who, yeah, he's beaten down, but he knows he's on borrowed time. He knows eventually he's going to be executed. So he just gives Stallman a ton of lip. Petra even warns him that he might be executed or there might be an accident. And even Stallman kind of warns him of how easy it would be to have him, quote, disposed of. And Sutton just doesn't care. He calls Stallman a nut. That's what he says to Petra and she doesn't report him. I just kind of love this personality. He's like very loose cannon. A man with nothing to lose. I love yeah. it. I love all of it. Was it in this one, if we want to talk about Liz Shaw, did the doctor ask about her thinking about doing science? Yes, yeah. that was in this okay. episode. Oh, I love that. I just thought it was amazing to that. He was like, even if she's where she's at right now, there is probably a point in this world where she thought about being a scientist. So I'm going to play on that. And I was like, oh, that's a good way to do it, because obviously she's not a scientist now, but a lot of people change. I just thought that was a cool way of bringing that full circle. 
Well, I think part of the themes of this entire serial is that the fact that it's a parallel universe, but in this universe where we have the British HP Lovecraft mustache despotic leader on, in the background, that <laughs> happening probably changed the mm. course of all these people's lives. So that Liz Shaw was probably maybe much more similar to the Liz Shaw we know when they were little girls and how she wanted to be a scientist. And it's not the fault of her choices of who she is. It's the circumstances of the world that she lived in that forced her into this direction. That's what I've took away from it, especially when we get to the end of episode six. But I'll save my point for that later. And that kind of brings us back to how brutal this universe is. And I want to focus on the Doctor's interrogation. It's very heavily hinted, but not actually shown. The Doctor is being hit as part of it. I'm surprised they didn't just do that. I mean, dude, it's a kid's show going out at 5.30 on a Saturday evening. I don't think they can do that. How many people have they killed? Yeah, but there's a difference between that and seeing your hero being beaten relentlessly on screen. But would it have mattered if Havoc choreographed the, <laughs> the beating? Would that have made it better? Maybe. <laughs> Hey now, let's not be knocking <laughs> havoc. Yeah, you're right. It is brutal. And then we have the doctor being brought down to the holding cell next to another green werewolf. We find out this green werewolf can bend bars, <laughs> but he can't bend all the bars. And so the doctor locks him in, which I was a little confused by. I guess that buys him some time. He can only use that bend the bar power up once every like five minutes. He's got to rest up to do it again. I don't know. Well, the doctor only <laughs> has to get so far away before that green werewolf is someone else's problem. Yeah, exactly. True. Yeah. Those green werewolves have a one track mind. Just kind of whatever they see in front of them, they just go for it. It's, it's a dog eat dog universe here. So <laughs> as, as Don says, as long as the doctor can get further away from it than someone else. It, it was also probably ran out of heat. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and needed to stock up again. Yeah, the bars are cold. The yeah. geo bars are cold. One thing I want to ask you guys is we get occasional flashes into the original universe, our universe, the prime universe, whatever you want to call it. Here we have Sir Keith heading to London to try and convince them to step down. And incidentally, Sir Keith is another character who in this scene is wearing an old Etonian tie, just as Sir James was in Ambassadors. So we've got the public school gang still going strong here. But do we think that those little flashes into our universe are productive? Or would it have been better from a storytelling perspective if it had just stayed in the parallel universe for four solid episodes? I think they're effective because we know he's eventually going to get back to the regular universe. So it's somewhat important to know what's going on over there and what the impact of the Doctor being missing is having on them. I just wish they would have given Liz and the Brigadier a bit more activity. And they do get activity towards the very end before the Doctor arrives. But I feel like in these middle episodes, it's just them kind of raising their hands up there saying, where's the Doctor? I don't know. Really wish we could find him. I don't need to see the scene over and over again. You need to give them something, make them more active, I think. The Keith and the car scene is important. Keep that in because it yeah. keeps the connection between the two universes. But just they needed to keep the Brigadier and Liz more active. I don't know. I liked it. I thought that it was important to kind of show back and forth because you don't want to forget, especially after seven episodes, okay, what were we doing back in episode two? So it was good to keep that continuity. When the Doctor escapes, he finds a disguise and goes to the control room. And he goes to stand in formation, but just can't quite resist <laughs> playing around back. with the controls. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, what are you doing? And that gets him into trouble, of course. But then the countdown reaches zero. Stallman's holding the Doctor at gunpoint. 
And there's my favorite line. Listen to that. It's the sound of this planet screaming in rage. <laughs> oh, so good. And the countdown reaches one, and that takes us into our cliffhanger. Perfect. It's brilliant. I think it was my favorite cliffhanger of the whole serial. It's my second favorite, but episode five. And they have penetration zero. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay look if i'm not gonna do that or say anything about evacuation shoot two or whatever they called it you don't get to do that either <laughs> trying to class up the show what happens <laughs> what happened? Yeah. and i love it because sutton takes his jacket off because all of a sudden shit's getting real yep it's episode five where we get because you have to have this. If you have werewolves in your story, you have to have an extended werewolf transformation scene. And it's episode five where we have it. I think they do a decent job with it. Oh, Benton's transformation? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Can I add a plus one to the camp count for that? Because once he gets up, he just kind of stands and kind of guns at the camera for a little bit before it cuts away. He I does. thought that was very campy. Yes, it was. You forgot to mention the gurning of Pertwee as the doctor entered the parallel universe. He was working it. I think he might get another point. If we're giving it to Benton, we need to give one to the doctor for that as well. Mm -hmm. We're not quite there yet, but once Stallman goes full on Primord, he also oh. guns a lot. I think this is <laughs> this gets three for various guns. <laughs> what I found interesting with it, though, and what I thought was going to happen was that Benton changed, but he didn't seem to be acting like all the other ones. And they like focused on his face. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are they going to have him like have some part of his mind that's still Benton? And then I was like, oh, no, they didn't decide to go that route. I thought that would have been interesting. Yeah. But before we get to Benton, because that happens fairly late I in know. the episode, I kind of love what's going on at the beginning with the doctor hinting at Stallman's transformation. He says things like, somehow I don't think he feels the heat as we do. And when Stallman <laughs> goes into the drill head area, the doctor's like, oh, I think he likes it in there. <laughs> He's just <laughs> like, hey, yo, this thing's happening. You should pay attention to this. And everyone's just completely missing the point. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so good. And then there was that conversation about the evacuating versus deserting. And I thought that was really cool and really highlights all the people there. They don't have a choice. No, they're absolutely being forced into this. Lethbridge Stewart, when Sutton tries to leave, yells at him, you will stay here and do your duty. What is there left to do? The world's going to shit at this point. The doctors even said an atomic blast would be like a summer breeze in comparison to this. And then there's that wonderful shot of the exterior of the complex with smoke and steam just looming upwards, which I also have in my notes. That felt very Chernobyl as well. I really feel like the director of Chernobyl watched this a few times. I think this is just really well done. I liked all of the drill actually hitting, everything like earthquakes are starting. You've got the conversations about, are we going to get evacuated? Are we not? Like, I just thought all of that was just so cool. I really enjoyed that. And of course, then we have the main moral dilemma here. Uh, this world is not savable. And it's up to the doctor to persuade everyone else to help him get back to our world that could mm -hmm. still be saved. So, uh, yeah, you guys are screwed, but can you guys give me a jump start so I can leave? Is that cool? Is that cool? You all right? 
I kind of see the brigade leader's perspective. It's like, oh, so you can escape? Screw you, dude. Pretty much. It's like, yeah. so you didn't even know this was possible until it happened to you, but you're convinced if you save us, it'll blow up the universe or some crap? Yeah. I wouldn't believe him either. Equally, if I were the doctor, I wouldn't want to take someone as aggressive as the brigade leader. Oh, no, I don't blame him. It's just, <laughs> it's still kind of a, he's trusting a lot in these fascists, like, you're all going to have to die. Sorry about <laughs> that. But, you know, help me out. Would you? You can save your other selves. Like, well, screw my other selves. I want. I want to survive. <laughs> like, I, I don't even care about my future self, let alone a self in a parallel universe. <laughs> Isn't this also where we actually get Sir Keith in the car? Yes. Yeah. yeah, there's a cutaway. I love it because Sir Keith wasn't around too much at the beginning and then he was already killed off when we get to this alternate universe. But when he's in the car, it actually shows him being a very smart man and him figuring out what Stallman was doing and talking to his driver and all of that. I just thought that was really, really cool. And they did a really good job of making it seem like he was in an accident. And you think that he might have died and that ties into him being dead in the... Oh, I just... I love that. That was a nice fake out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It ties it together really, really well. But when we come back to the parallel universe, we've had the Doctor and crew making the break for it into Lethbridge Stewart's office, and we've got the Primords converging on the office door. Very quickly, before we move on to the next episode, let's talk about the Primords and Stallman just basically taking scientists and dipping them in the green goo. That is <laughs> oh. nasty. Oh. Yes. Oh. <laughs> rubbing his face in it like you <laughs> all you need to do is touch it with your hand but no i'm gonna shove people's faces in it just ugh. yeah ugh, he slimed me ray <laughs> <laughs> there's a really great shot when they get the heat door raised again as stallman is coming out you see the others kind of walking around behind him but they're very much in the background like they're not the main threat and i thought that was really really well shot mm-hmm Yes, the composition of the shot was really good. And there's, like I said, I make criticisms about it, but I don't know what it is about these green werewolves. I do dig them. I really <laughs> like them. There's something abstractively creepy about them. And I'm wondering if it has to do with some sort of childhood trauma from a Scooby-Doo villain or something, because you would see that type of green coloring on a Scooby-Doo villain. It was, yeah. I don't know, it, it's bizarre. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it unnerving yeah. and uncomfortable. If they were like brown werewolves, it would have been laughable. It's the yeah. color change. And I think I've said this to you guys before, but when I was a child, body horror and particularly humans becoming something other than humans scared the hell out of me. And as a seven-year-old, I couldn't watch this story because I found the primal so frightening. Oh. All right. Poor little baby Anthony. So they break <laughs> in and we get to episode six. Arm through the window. That old trick. This is where we discover that we can use fire extinguishers. That's you can use them as a way to back them off. Yeah. Or yeah. disable them. The doctor had used that in several of the previous episodes. It was something that he had figured out. Although I'm surprised that they were up to standard by how many fire extinguishers they had just yeah. hanging around. They did at least follow fire codes in the fascist universe. Fascist fire safety. Very important. Also, <laughs> I wonder what their budget was for just the fire extinguishers. <laughs> <laughs> they probably just went around television center and gathered up all the fire extinguishers they could and put them on set. All I know is that when they left the Brigadier's office and ran out, I was counting because they were talking about how a limited resource it was. I counted like three of them, right? Was they were passing out into the central room. I'm like, you guys are good. You got enough. This should be fine. 
I do love that it's Greg who thinks using the coolant hose as a giant fire extinguisher. He's taken the doctor's idea and dialed it up to 11. Yes. <laughs> Go, Greg! This fire extinguisher goes up to 11. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, because of the story, they get the coolant pipe ready just in time for Lethbridge Stewart's fire extinguisher to run out of juice. Oh, and of course. I love that very brief look of panic you see on Lethbridge Stewart's face as... The Primords clearly sense that they can advance, and Greg gets there just in time with the coolant pipe. You go, Greg. Saving Lethbridge Stewart's ass again. And there's another shot where I think it went to the real world and like real life Lethbridge Stewart got to do some yelling of his own. So it wasn't just him being fascist version, it's him being real life version, so... Yeah, he yells at Paul Benton. You know, he's trying to get Benton to bring Stallman in. But he also then yells at Stallman as well, so, you know. True. True. He's an equal opportunity yeller. He's going to, you know, make sure <laughs> everyone Benton <laughs> turned into a werewolf in one universe and just yelled out relentlessly in the other. So I know I've been shipping Petra and Sutton, but there was like this weird thing with Liz, like seeming to not trust Sutton, but also at the same time, like awkwardly flirting with Sutton. And I was like, what, what is going on here? He, he should be with Petra. When he goes to visit the doctor's hut and talks to Liz. Yes. And she's kind of evasive about it until yes. Greg shows how perceptive he is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was awkward. I do have another ship for this, and that is Stallman in the Drillhead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back in the parallel universe, another little directorial thing I love is the heat effect as Lethbridge Stewart, Liz, and Petra get outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They've got that kind of orange filter over the camera, and that really gave the impression of, holy shit, this world is burning up. It's here where we have the classic kind of action movie trying to do an escape story where it's like, well, here's the thing we need, but wait, we have to turn this switch off over here. So let's go over and try to do that. And then it, they do kind of turn on its head a little bit because Petra is unable to do it the first time, only to come to the shed and then go back to the console and fix it, which I thought was a nice touch to think that she couldn't do it the first time. And then she has the bravery of going back to try to fix it. Mm -hmm. That's a good character moment. And the first time you've got Lethbridge Stewart basically bullying her on it. And it's like, dude, that's not going to help. Yeah, it's really not. Gets his own terrible boss moment. Yeah. What cracks me up is it's a later point as they're thinking about leaving and going to the hut. Petra says, I should stay here and finish the work. At which point Lethbridge Stewart turns around to her and yells at her, you stay here and finish your work. <laughs> <laughs> she just said she was going to do that. Yeah. Uh you got all that going on. You have Petra having the backbone to go back. You have Sutton saying, ah, she went back. And so then he has to go. And I'm like, ah, just everything is mounting and it's wonderful. And I love it. Well, and then we have the Brigadier Sutton standoff. Yes. And then the gun being used. And I have to say, I'm so very happy because once he pulled the trigger and it didn't fire, thinking it was not loaded, I'm so glad they resolved that when he then pointed the gun at the doctor later on in the scene. I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. It's not loaded. Then for him to shoot off to the side, I'm like, oh, so he loaded it in between oh. now and then. And then someone said it's loaded. I'm like, okay, good. You resolved that plot issue. Thank you. So in the Star Trek Mirror Universe, they use Chekhov's gun. <laughs> <laughs> not the same Chekhov, but I'm going to the joke anyway i don't care we'll allow it <laughs> okay thank you yep. so just on the sutton lethbridge stewart fight what i love here is the world is coming to an end you've got people literally 
being implied to be devolving into the primords. And you've got Lethbridge, Stewart, and Greg going into fisticuffs. The world is ending, and they are literally turning into savages in front of our eyes. I thought hmm. that was really, really cool. Like a very scathing commentary on human nature. And then we get Liz in this alternate version, finally making that choice of who do I believe? What needs to happen? What do I need to do? And she helps the doctor do what he needs to do, even though she's not the same Liz. I mean, what does she have to lose? She knows she's doomed either way, so she may as well try and help someone. Can I ask a stupid, really nitpicky question? Yeah. We're in the mirror universe, yeah. and the doctor, as far as we know, doesn't exist there. He's never encountered yeah. the brigade leader or any of these bolts, because why would he? How did Bessie get there? It went with them when they went to with the TARDIS. It took, I thought the TARDIS console took Bessie with him. Yeah, it did. It did was it? It did. I guess it was close enough to the TARDIS yeah. console to be huh. caught in huh. its field or something. I would have thought it yeah. would have taken Liz then too. Okay, fair enough. Cool. And I think here at the end of episode six, and this is where I will clarify, I had seen this before, but it had been many, many years ago. And so when I wrapped up episode six, this go around, and you have that shot of this giant tsunami of lava. I mean, after the doctor leaves and you see Sutton, Petra and Liz, I sat there and I thought like, wow, this would be really, really sad when you really think about these people who didn't know the doctor living in such a world that they live in had a tremendous character change that they were willing to believe him and help and do the right thing. And yet they're still doomed. I'm like, oh, that's okay because there's one episode left. He comes back and saves him, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes it just so much more heartbreaking. That is just utterly heartbreaking, Uh, the end of that episode. And the depiction of the end of the world is horrifying. I mean, there Mm -hmm. were those great shots of people cowering in the streets as ash and stuff comes down, explosions. You've already mentioned the lava. I mean, it's pretty intense. And of course the Doctor escapes. Was it ever going to go any other way? (laughs) But it's surprising that he seems so discombobulated and confused by it. You would think he'd have a better ability to handle this idea. And he seemed to understand the concept when he was in the alternate universe. But when he's come back, he seems like he can't wrap his head around it as well. I don't think it's so much that he can't wrap his head around it. But what I'm surprised at is when he first went over to that alternate, he didn't seem to have a problem. But when he comes back, he seems like he's sick and all that. That's what I don't understand is the physical. I honestly think it's some kind of trauma. He's literally spent several episodes trying to save the world, fails and then witnesses the end of the world, and then has to go through what I assume is the time-space vortex without the safety of the actual TARDIS shell around him. So I assume that it's just a combination of trauma from what he's just seen and trauma of the experience of going through the vortex again. I don't know. Maybe I'm headcanoning this. No, no, I think that works. That can work. I mean, yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe it's headcan, but you know what? I'll take it. I'll use it myself. Thank you. This is where we also have our universe's Stallman doing his full transformation scene. And I really enjoy like when he starts having his little episodes where he's looking up into the ceiling and yes. kind of freaking out. I love how in the background you can see the other scientists looking at him like, what the hell is wrong with this? What is he doing? What is he doing <laughs> now? Look of concerns. God, it's always something with this guy. And then he ushers them out of the room, like, get, get out of here, get out of here, which for other people turning into a werewolf, you would think they're doing that of like, save yourselves, I'm turning into this werewolf. With Stallman, I'm sure it wasn't that. He was more like, get out of here, I got to make sure this drill destroys us all. Before he even does that, he's pushing more power, more power, more power. And what's telling between the two universes is you see Greg and Petra openly questioning him which you didn't see in the parallel universe because they couldn't. They would have been executed. And everyone knows that Stallman's just losing it at this point. 
Absolutely. One of the weird things I found was when Liz was like, well, I can take care of the doctor and because I'm a doctor. And I'm like, you're not that kind of doctor. <laughs> I, I had the I same have thought. I'm like, you're, not a med- you're not, not a physician. <laughs> <laughs> you might have like six PhDs, but none of them. are. <laughs> yeah. That was a little strange. I think it's mainly just a since no one else really knows the doctor and he has, you know, the whole two hearts thing. She probably is just like, let's not bring in a physician who's just going to ask a whole bunch of questions. Yeah. The doctor trying to convince them to stop the drilling. Dude, I get that he's recovering from whatever, but when he just starts attacking the consoles with a spanner. What are you doing? This is not the way you convince these people, doctor. And you know it. You know it, sir. Yeah, I found that a little bit out of character, but I think that was just, again, him being like discombobulated, just being like, I just saw some crazy things go down. So he was probably just like, end of the world. Okay, I'm doing whatever possible to prevent that, even if it makes him seem crazy. Before Stallman forces his transformation, the lack of respect he shows to Sir Keith is stunning. He just refers to him as my dear gold, not Sir Keith. My dear gold, sir, sir, that is not how you address a knight of the realm. (laughs) What a dick. And it's so funny when Sir Gold is like, there's nothing I can do. I'm like, you just went over there to be able to go do something and you come back and then you say you can't do anything. Yeah. That made no sense. Yeah. You literally just went and got the authority. But somehow only Stallman can give that final order. Yeah. And he's not going to. I need proof of an emergency situation. Well, Stallman shows up fully transformed. Yeah. There's your proof, mate. There's your goddamn proof. Look, man, the guy's about to eat some kibbles and bits. Look at him. All right. <laughs> and he puts more slime on his face. Ugh. Just loves that slime. Yeah. <laughs> Once he's fully transformed, how does Greg know to Ugh. grab a fire extinguisher when the doctor does? They grab them simultaneously and start hosing down Stallman. I have no idea, but I don't care because Greg Sutton is the best. Oh, I thought you were going to headcanon this for us. Oh, no. No, 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 no. I'm an Anthony. No, I've, I've got no headcanon for that. Maybe he just trusts the doctor. I don't know. He's committed to fire safety. He thought if the doctor had seen a fire, there must be one. He grabbed it. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to try and headcanon that, but no. So we destroy with the fire extinguishers. We get down to, what was it, 35 seconds, 39 mm-hmm. seconds, something like something that? Something like that, which I thought was a weird choice. It's too cliche to get it down to like below 10, right? It's usually, you know? yeah. it's usually either at 1 or 10 or something even. I think it was like 33. I could be wrong, but it was an unusual number, which I liked. But in order to get there, we have to get the doctor doing one of our favorite things and doing some rewiring. Yeah, he's good at that. <laughs> So we have a happy ending. The project's abandoned. Greg and Petra leave together. The doctor gets to continue with his experiments. Has anyone figured out what they did with Stallman? I'm assuming (laughs) that (laughs) the fire extinguishers didn't kill him. Yeah, they took him to a nice farm in the country and run around, (laughs) give him some room. Give him some sheep to eat. You know, it's fine. Well, I don't really care what happens to him at all. So we're just going to let that be. What I want to focus on is the doctor just being like, yep, I'm trying to leave. Peace out. I'm like, oh my God. Let's show it. You're a pompous, self-opinionated <laughs> idiot. <laughs> I love that so much. Oh, it was so He good. really does get his comeuppance by landing in the rubbish tip. <laughs> and he should. He was mad at the Brigadier because the Brigadier rightfully told him we were in the middle of this situation and you walked off in a huff and tried to leave. 
And frankly, he nearly got himself killed in an apocalypse. Yeah, which would have happened if the Doctor hadn't managed to get back from yeah. this apocalypse to our world. Like, there would have been another apocalypse. So he was right. This whole thing could have been done in like two, three episodes if the Doctor hadn't done that. So there was a pompous, self-opinionated idiot in the scene, but it wasn't the Brigadier. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that he has to come back and basically eat his words and apologize <laughs> to Lethbridge Stewart and ask for help. Like, yep. yeah, yeah, damn right, Doctor. And we end with Liz laughing at them both. All right, let's rate this one. Riley, we start with you this time around. Easily the best serial of the season. It takes a commissary trope, but it executes it very well. The use of the music was excellent. The dialogue was great. The structure of the story was also excellent. And I know we have all been waiting patiently for the first bit of Venusian karate. My criticisms are that I just don't know why, but I feel like I would have preferred if maybe the Doctor came back in the middle of the sixth episode, because that seventh episode feels a little rushed. I think I would have liked it to take a little bit more time when he comes back to resolve these issues and have things not seem so hurried. And lastly, and I've mentioned it before, just they could have made them green demons. Just make them green demons. It would have fit the title. It would have made sense coming from the Earth, some weird green primordial evil slime. It just makes sense. It would have been worked better. But that's it. It's still a lot of fun. I give it eight and a half penetration zeros out of ten. I'm up next. I'm not the last one this time. I adore this story. It has long been one of my top ten Doctor Who stories of all time, and discussing it with you guys has not changed that. There are some faults, I will admit. There are some things in the plot that could have been done better. It is padded. It's very well padded, and the padding is well executed, unusually. But I love the relationship and how you get to see different versions of the characters. I love that we actually get to see the Earth go up in flames at the end of episode six. Riley, respectfully, I disagree with you. I think we needed episode six to end with the apocalypse and to leave us with that mystery of does the doctor get back? I actually think episode seven is the one part I'm not happy with. It's repetitive. We know the doctor's going to stop the apocalypse. We know what's going on with the drilling. I think that's the one piece that doesn't quite stand up for me. But regardless of that, I really, really enjoy this one. And for me, this is my second 10 out of 10. 10 green goo jars out of 10. All right, done. You're next. First of all, I don't hate this story. I'm going to crap on it a little bit, but I don't hate it. <laughs> I find it is a good story, bordering on very good, not great, and not even remotely near a 10 out of 10. The reasons for this are it doesn't quite execute everything it could to take advantage of a really good concept. I love the parallel universe, but if you take it out from our original conflict, him going there doesn't change anything. I didn't like the fact that Stallman didn't have a motivation aside from the fact that he was just an a-hole. There was no real need before he even got infected to be like that. And there was no contrast between him and the parallel universe. So I found every scene he was in where there was a whole bunch of repetitive arguments to be tedious and annoying. The green werewolf things weren't well explained as far as why they were happening. And so I didn't find them relevant to the plot. They were there to add a monster. And I don't like it when things are just there for no adequate reason. That said, this is a script that really could have used some work that was executed really well. The direction is good. The acting is fantastic. The stock music is used quite well. But I still find, especially in regards to what Andy just said, I find it very overrated. I would not put this in my top 10 Doctor Who stories of anything. 
especially because it seems like it's more of what we've already had this season, even worse than the Troughton base under siege years. But it's well done for what it is, so I'll give it seven eye patches out of ten. I had a feeling that you wouldn't quite be there, and I do agree with you on the acting and directing. I think in the hands of a lesser pair of directors and a lesser cast, I would not think this is nearly as good as it is. Anyway, Julie. I really enjoyed this story. I think that, as a lot of people already mentioned, the direction is really well done. I like what Riley said earlier about the scripts and the callbacks. That is one well-written script. Now, there might be a little bit of fodder there. There might be a little bit of monster for the sake of monster, but I still enjoyed them for once. (laughs) (laughs) And I've really just had a lot of fun with this. I watched it in two sittings and probably could have watched it in one if I had just given myself time because it just kept me entertained the entire time. So I am going to give it eight and a half Petra Sutton ships out of ten. (laughs) All right. That gives us a story average of eight and a half, which is pretty good. The best we've had since the War Games, in fact. That brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time for our absolutely standard end of season retrospective. So we hope you will join us again for that. But in the meantime, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Screw You Guys, I'm Going Home, was recorded on Wednesday the 28th of July 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And always remember, never give up on your dreams, even if several sources tell you that your dreams may result in the apocalypse. 